This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio. Thank you for joining me. It's great to have you with us tuning in for another episode. Uh, It all depends when this podcast goes live, if it's the end of December or sometime in January. But I wanted to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. I hope you're having a great holiday season. I hope you're out there hunting and shooting. And if you are, I'm jealous. Uh, This time of the year, I guess, is to, you know, reconnect with family, friends, you know, and it's even if you like to go out hunting and shooting and enjoying this great country and enjoying this great pastime. I'm sure many of you would have got some, you know, great Christmas presents, especially in the hunting, shooting and fishing arena. Maybe a new reel, maybe a new firearm, you know, maybe, you know, it could be anything. And uh, maybe you got off your significant other, your mum, your dad, but I hope you all got a lot of awesome presents, a lot of awesome goodies, because this is definitely a great time uh, of year to reconnect with family and uh, friends and enjoy the holiday season. Uh, During the end of December, I'll be spending a bit of time in Queensland over Christmas period, uh, and then probably uh, towards sometime in January, I might be heading to Mallacoota again in Victoria. Um, One of my school friends, actually his uncle, has a nice holiday house down there, so we do like to get down there, do a bit of fishing, and uh, as you guys know, in summertime, it does get a little bit hot, and sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes uh, hunting in 40 degree weather is really just not my cup of tea of a really, really enjoyable time. Uh, yeah, probably spotlighting at night's obviously a lot better, but when you get into that swag or tent you know, during the day for a nap or even at night, it's 40 or 38 degrees, it's literally hell on earth. So all the people that can handle that sort of thing, kudos to you because you, know, you guys are the diehards that you don't care what season it is because you love hunting so much, you just get out and do it all year round. So I commend you guys. But coming up on today's show, finally I've been able to get my guest onto the show. He's been very, very busy, but we've been able to get him onto the show today. And that person is Matt Dubber. Now, if you don't know who Matt Dubber is, you can check him out on Instagram, of course, on Facebook as well. But his main Social media content is on YouTube, and if you type in Air Arms Hunting SA, that's basically one word, Air Arms Hunting SA for South Africa, uh, you'll bring up his YouTube channel, over 315,000 subscribers on all things from uh, long-range air gun hunting to long-range centerfire hunting, you name it, he's pretty much doing it, and I tell you what, guys, if you've watched his content, if you've watched his videos, the content is just absolutely fantastic i mean the way he edits videos it's just a really really good experience and uh, one of the series in particular that he offers is called the ox wagon diaries and i recommend if you punch in air arms hunting essay on youtube it'll come up and enjoy that series from the first episode right until i think it's up to the 19th episode and hunting all different types of game all different types of uh, uh, shooting hunting Uh, it's awesome watching different people and different cultures in South Africa and many countries around the world. And I've done a lot of shows with a lot of different people from overseas and I've received many emails from people saying they really love to hear from not only people in Australia, but also from people overseas as well. And I've always said it on a lot of show, universally, doesn't matter where we're from, doesn't matter if you're from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, USA, parts of Europe, uh, even if you're from Greenland, Russia even, I'm sure they love their hunting over there too. It's universal, and that's what we all have in common. So again, if you get a chance, just check out Air Arms Hunting SA for a wonderful experience on hunting, 
uh, and shooting activities. So we'll bring Matt onto the show. All right, Matt Dubber from Air Arms Hunting South Africa, or SA, however you'd like to say it. Welcome to AHP. Thanks for joining me. We're going to have a great chat today about everything to do with hunting, shooting, uh, YouTubing, making videos, and hunting and shooting in that wonderful place of South Africa. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be on you. I've actually never been on a podcast before. Yeah. That is the first time for everything, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Mate, uh, well, I guess what I want to find out about first is just give us a bit of a background just about yourself, where you're from, uh, you know, growing up. Uh, how did you get into hunting and shooting, I think, would be a fantastic start. That's a good question. Um, so I've, I'm born and bred in, in South Africa in a little, well, not little, it's actually a pretty big city called uh, Port Elizabeth. But my family for many generations, probably since the late 1700s or early 1800s, have had a farm um, pretty close to where I'm living now, actually. And so I've, I've had farming blood in my, in my, uh, in my family for, for many generations. And I guess I just grew up wanting to be outdoors and, and learning to shoot with my grandfather. And um, I've always, always had a passion for the outdoors. And in South Africa... Pretty much every young man has exposure to hunting and shooting from from quite a young age, and because we have quite a big rural population here, so it's something I've I've always enjoyed, and um, I guess the passions just continued. <laughs> Absolutely. What if you don't mind me asking? What sort of farming are, you, are your family into? Anything in particular? So the area where I live um, is very much. Uh, kind of sheep farming and for sheep farming and a lot of dairy farming along the coast there's basically 30 percent of the entire country's dairy farms are positioned along the coast where i live and then just a few hours inland the altitude grows it gets um uh, much drier and then there's a lot of sheep farming and uh, angora goat farming for um uh mohair it's actually the biggest mohair producing area in the world um but there's also a lot of game farming. My family actually hasn't been involved in any of that. My family's just been basically subsistence farming. So a few pigs, a few sheep, a few cattle, some ostriches. And then on the, that's my mother's side of the family. On my father's side of the family, um, my, they've been beekeepers. So really, really <laughs> right. a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, beekeeping is actually pretty popular here in Australia as well. So it seems it's popular in South Africa as well. Yeah, funnily enough... Um, the, the honey that my family's been producing, most of it comes from uh, blue gum trees, which are invasive. They're from Australia. <laughs> so we probably have some honey that tastes pretty similar to yours. <laughs> Don't worry. There's a lot of invasive things uh, introduced here in Australia, which uh, I guess get, also gives us some great hunting and shooting opportunities as well. But uh, I was just going to talk to you about, you were talking about how you got into hunting and shooting. Um, you know, was your whole family into hunting and shooting? Your brothers, if you've got any brothers or sisters, is the, the whole family into shooting? Or was it, because I speak to a lot of different people and, you know, many people get into it different ways and they've always sort of got that one experience that uh, really hooks them and I, I spoke about this a lot before on my show about when I went to uh, dove hunting in Texas was the thing that really sort of attracted me back to hunting and shooting and uh, after that I've been hooked ever since and that was about 12 or 13 years ago now so what was that experience that you thought man I really love this I love this hunting I love this shooting and this is hopefully something you can do for the rest of your life well it's interesting in my case 
my immediate family, my, my parents, and actually don't have any brothers, I've got two sisters, but my immediate family, no one is into shooting or hunting at all. So my first exposure to shooting was through my grandfather, who obviously living on a farm um, has to own rifles and would often just let me open up his gun safe and, and we'd go out and he'd teach me how to shoot a little bit. And then also, I guess, just I've always had a passion for it, even from before I knew what a gun was. I guess I was trying to uh, shoot stuff with uh, uh, slingshots and I used to chew my, my sandwiches into the shape of a, of a handgun and pretend to shoot. And eventually my parents realized, <laughs> okay, well, he's going to end up with a gun anyway, so we might as well teach him the right way, you know, the safe ways of, of doing it. So uh, I remember, I think I was 13 or so, my, my parents bought me my first air rifle, just a very, very, very cheap Chinese-made Springer. And from there, to where I was absolutely hooked. You know, when you're young, you can be a little bit off-put by firearms. They're noisy, they kick a bit. Um, it's a bit scary when you're, when you're a really young boy, I guess, but air rifles are, are not scary at all. So that's a really good way to transition into, into firearms. So for me, it was, it was all air guns until the age of about 18 or 19. And then from there, I started to develop a passion for firearms. But I only de- developed a passion for firearms once I realized that firearms could be interesting in the sense of an air gun is a PCP air gun at least, it's very tunable. You can change things. You can play around. It's, it's never the same thing twice. But my exposure to firearms early on was you buy factory ammo, you put the factory ammo in the chamber, and you set, you stuck with that velocity, you stuck with that bullet, you stuck with the feel, you stuck with that accuracy. You know, you might be able to play around with a few different loads, uh, factory loads, but it's only when I got into hand loading that my passion for firearms developed because then I realized you know, the opportunities are, and the possibilities are endless. I can do whatever I want. I can make this gun shoot better. And that was really exciting for me. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about, I guess, for people that uh, haven't been to South Africa. I remember many years ago when I was a young whippersnapper, I'm 38 now, I, I went and uh, worked on a ski field in America, uh, just north of New York. And I lived with three South Africans for a period of about... Uh, probably about four and a half months, and uh, I'm still friends with some of them today, which is fantastic. Some almost 16 years, 17 years later, which is fantastic. So for people that haven't been to South Africa, tell us about just a little bit about the country. I mean, over here in Australia as well, we're suffering quite a, a serious drought. We don't have much water. You know, the farmers are struggling to put food on the table. So are you having similar drought issues in South Africa? And just give us a bit of a rundown on the country and sort of, you know, what sort of hunting opportunities people can have over there. Yeah, well, this one might take um, a while to answer because there's a lot to talk about, especially with the drought. But I think in general, I think South Africans and Australians um, understand each other fairly well in the sense that, okay, we obviously sports rivals and cricket and rugby and all of that. But um, <laughs> I was going to the... say our rugby, <laughs> our rugby union team is not, not doing very well at the moment, but, your, but yours is, that's for sure. You'll, you'll bounce back. You'll bounce back. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess, being isol- fairly isolated countries, both former British colonies, um, similar landscapes in the sense that we've got green coastal regions, some mountains, and then a lot of dry, flat, open land. And I guess we experience the same issues in the sense that um, we have droughts. You guys have some crazy forest fires almost every year. Um, 
it gets pretty cold and pretty warm because we're pretty far south. Um, and we, we're far away from, you know, Europe and the U.S. And so we kind of, I guess we can understand each other fairly well. But, um, yeah, hunting in South Africa, I guess, I guess it's a little bit different to Australia because in South Africa, the majority of our population is rural. It's a lot of people living on farms. Um, a lot of people living in very small towns in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's always been traditionally very much a farming country. Um, whereas, I guess, Australia, if you look at the, the demographics, Australia is very heavily urbanized. So in Australia, I guess you're exposed a little bit more to opposition from um, the big cities when it comes to hunting Absolutely. and what you're allowed to shoot. Yep. And I've got a friend, I've got a friend in Australia, um, Bo Ricketts, from Precision Vomiting, I believe he's there in New South Wales as well. Yep. Um, he's, he talks to me all the time about some of the opposition he gets from just crazy anti-hunters from Sydney and Melbourne and guys who don't know anything about how it works and how it's actually so necessary, especially in Australia. With, you've got a lot of feral animals there, so you have to do a lot of culling in Australia and a lot of predator control. And South Africa is very different because we've always had a very strong hunting culture and we've always realized that if animals don't have a value, then they're going to go extinct. They're going to get wiped out. In, in the 1960s, a classic example is the black wildebeest. Black wildebeest was almost entirely extinct in the 1960s. There were only a few hundred left. And then they legalized hunting for black wildebeest. Previously, it was not legal. They legalized hunting and suddenly the, the, the value of of the animal increased a lot because obviously if the animal is worth something to a hunter, then the landowner wants to, wants to keep the animal. So suddenly there were thousands of black bulbias and now it's one of the most, you know, you can find them everywhere now. So we've realized, in fact, the whole, the whole of Africa bar a few countries like let's say Kenya, for example, Kenya's struggling right now in terms of the animal populations. And that's because they've, they, there's not many hunting opportunities, but South Africa and Namibia, Zimbabwe, um, Zambia, these are all countries that have embraced hunting and have some of the, the strongest populations of and the strongest variety of animals of any countries in the world, despite having heavily rural populations. In other words, you yes, we've got a lot of open space, but you're never far from some from a family living on a farm, or you're never far from a small town. Whereas Australia, I guess, you you've got a lot of open space where there's no one anywhere near you. <laughs> so it's, I guess there's some slight differences there. And I guess in, in, in terms of in, from the species we have as well, we've got so many game animals that people eat that, you know, we export a ton of venison to Europe and, and the U.S. And um, so that's a big industry as well. And I guess the fact that we have a lot of animals that you can eat is something that has made the hunting seem a little bit more bearable to people who are against it. Um, whereas Australia, I guess if, if you have to go out and shoot a kangaroo, although it's probably entire, entirely necessary if they're quite destructive, you're going to get people who say, well, you know, a kangaroo is not traditionally an animal that people eat all over the world, so we're going to condemn it. Yeah. And I guess those are some of the struggles we face. But the drought has been particularly bad. Um, I actually, I was almost in tears last night. I had a phone call from a friend on a farm that I've been hunting on a lot to say that they're almost bankrupt because they've had to buy feed for all of their sheep now and buy um, salt lick and try to keep these animals alive. Nobody wants to buy them because of the drought. Everyone's got enough sheep. Everyone's trying to get rid of them. And 
actually, the, this whole area that's going through drought is the Witboskler farm where we filmed the Oxwagon Diaries. Yep, yep. Those farms are, all the farms in that area are going down. Guys are going bank, bankrupt. Farmers are committing suicide because they're so ashamed. Yep. It's yep. rough. It's really rough. Yep. So, you know, I, I'm trying to make people aware of that and I'm probably going to do a series at some point again at Whitmore's Cliff at the Oxwagon camp and just encourage guys to do what they can to help, whether it's, you know, a, a donation um, for, for animal feed or whether it's just coming to stay at the farm and, and you know, because they offer accommodation and, and then paying the accommodation rate and, you know, keeping the farm running. So I guess in these times we need to help those guys out because at the end of the day, they supply food for us and, so without the farmers, we've got nothing. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. It, it almost seems like you're talking about Australia here because our drought has been very serious at the moment. Um, we've had just probably like you've heard, we've had wildfires and then people, you know, idiots just lighting fires, thinking it's fun to light a fire and people losing their homes. And it's already hard enough for farmers as it is. And you, you touched on something that's you know very close to my heart too. And you talked about, you know, farmers committing suicide and stuff like that because they just feel shame or they've just got no money just to just to continue and it's a it's a real epidemic and something that we definitely we definitely need to sort out because it's a very very sad thing when you know our farmers think there's no way to to continue on and they feel the need to kill themselves i mean it's absolutely tragic it's just it's it's really heartbreaking to be brutally honest and the way you talk there it almost sounds like you're talking about australia to me it hits home pretty hard so yeah, it's crazy. I wanted to talk about something that you brought up just a few seconds ago too, actually, was talking about the different countries and the and the game hunting scene and bringing animals, you know, having them to, to hunt and, and, you know, people coming in to pay for those hunts. And I think I just saw an article. It was in, in one of our papers in Australia here, which is quite surprising because they're quite anti-hunting over here. Uh, Botswana. I think Botswana, there was an article that I read over there where um, they had a significant decrease in game animals after they banned some type of game hunting in Botswana now they're apparently starting I think it might be either late this year or if not early next year they're opening up their game hunting again which is absolutely fantastic uh, I guess the anti-hunters didn't realize when you remove game hunting and put a price on the head of an animal uh, you have a significant reduction in those animals hence the reason and congratulations to Botswana for opening up hunting again and people coming in and you know giving to the community yeah, and it's interesting. So Botswana's always been fairly pro-hunting, but it's the elephants in Botswana that people were against because people assume that you can't eat an elephant or people assume that because it's such a majestic animal that it's endangered, and that's not the case. So Botswana felt pressure from the international community to ban elephant hunting, and when they did, the elephants completely ran rampant. The elephants destroyed all the, you know, elephants destroyed trees like it's nothing. They started wiping out all the vegetation and then that started having a knock-on effect where all the other animals started dying because they've got no more food, they've got no more uh, cover. It's just, it was just a nightmare. So there, there was something like 
Botswana, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the carrying capacity was was way over what it should be. The the, the there were way too many elephants per per square kilometer than there than there should be, and it was causing so many issues that some of the native villages. There was a video going around on Facebook where it was actually in Kenya, I believe, where people were hacking an elephant to death, and the story behind that is the elephants start venturing into areas where people live because they are desperate for food because they've eaten their own, all their own natural vegetation. And then they start injuring people. They start flattening people's houses and people get curious about it. And they, they start killing the elephants. Same thing with lions. People started ban- banning lion hunting. And I know lion hunting seems like such a barbaric thing. And I personally probably would never hunt a lion. But the fact of the matter is when a lion gets to a certain age, it gets it gets kicked out of the pride, and it's wondering about its own, and, and it can't hunt like it used to. So it starts getting really aggressive, and that's when lions start becoming dangerous. They start killing people. They start killing livestock. The lion can wipe out someone's all of someone's livestock in in just a matter of a few days, and they have to be controlled. And people don't realize that. And there was a, a dentist from the U.S. who shot a lion. Yep, yep. In Zimbabwe just a few years ago, and it caused a knock-on effect with Zimbabwe. Um, the hunting industry for lions basically crashed. No one wanted to come hunt lions anymore for fear of being attacked. So people stopped hunting lions, and the lion population got so big that the government had to shoot 200 lions. So at the end of the day, if you don't hunt it, someone else is going to have to. The government's going to have to bring in a culling operation, and there's no benefit in that. It doesn't bring any money into the economy, it doesn't feed the, the people who work on the game farms. You know, these are people um, basically relying on the hunting industry for, to feed their family because they, you know, they get paid to guard hunts or they get paid to skin the animals or they get paid to clean the game lodges. And these people, when no one hunts, they've got nothing. They lose their jobs, and it just it kills the economy and it kills the it kills it destroys families. So people don't realize that that's that's effective and. Good on Botswana for, for putting their foot down and saying that they're not going to be influenced by um, anti-hunters in America and Europe. They're going to make their own their own laws. And they finally put their foot down. They finally said, we've had enough of this rubbish. And they, they did what they know is right, and that is to, to obviously well-regulate the hunting, but to introduce legal hunting for, for all kinds of species, even species that you wouldn't normally hunt. Um, it, keeps, it actually keeps the species alive, which is fantastic. Absolutely, and I totally agree. While, you know, maybe I probably, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to afford to <laughs> shoot a lion anyway. I mean, I, if, it's, yeah, if it's sustainable and, you know, they're looking after the herd and managing the herd, mate, I've got absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. And it's interesting how many countries around the world and people just in general actually put one animal on a higher pedestal than another animal. I mean, what's the difference between the your family dog or, say, an elephant or a lion? Lion or that little mouse that you know goes in the back of your shed that people will be happy to kill. Yet my understanding and what I think it always seems to be Matt that the the bigger the animal, the more quote unquote majestic that it is, and all of a sudden that becomes one of those magical animals you you just can't shoot or do anything with. It's it's unbelievable. Exactly, and that's that's a big problem we have because so many of our animals are big. <laughs> so it's like everything is seen as. Except, I guess, the, ante- the antelope species, I guess, people look at favorably and say, okay, it's an antelope, it's, 
it's traditionally it's been hunted and eaten all the time, and people assume you're going to eat it. But if you shoot anything other than an antelope, it's it's over for you. People come start coming after you. Thankfully, we have because we have a very strong cult, hunting culture, we get basically no opposition from within South Africa. Everyone understands that hunting is necessary. You can go wave. You can go walk down the main street of a of a big city with a, a you know a taxidermy animal on your shoulder, and no one's going to say anything about it, which is really special, I guess. So not many places in the world have that. Um, but I, I see we obviously still going to face opposition from uh, countries overseas, and social media can be very dangerous. You've got to be careful what you post nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was thinking how good it is it in South Africa. I might have to move there one day myself. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say too, you brought up something just a little bit earlier too. You were talking about the Oxwagon Diaries. Now I've got to say, listen, just it's just my personal opinion. That is one of the best shows and series I think I've probably seen on YouTube, and I'm not just saying that because you're on my show. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I don't know how many times I've watched that series from, I think you've got roughly, what, 19 or so episodes. Could be close to that anyway. Um, but I've watched every single one of them, probably six times each. It's just so enjoyable. The way you you make those videos, the way you've put them together. I can imagine I used to film a lot of weddings myself, uh, wedding filmography, and that was hard enough to get all the shots. And for you to have all the narration and thing, things like that, I mean, I can imagine it is a lot of work. And people sort of don't realize the, the work that goes into it. But that is my favorite series, the one that you've put together there. Just the the terrain, the environment, the animals that are on offer to be able to shot, the long-range shooting, which is obviously something I'm really passionate about as well. Just bloody fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's actually a, a series that's extremely close to my heart as well. It's, it's my favorite uh, series to be filmed and also to, to watch. Actually, sometimes just I miss that place and I actually sit down and watch my own videos over and over again. I just, I love that place. There's something about, I don't know, that, that, that particular farm in general, it's actually a really, it's a 50,000 hectare um, conservancy. So it's a big area, but there's something about that place that's very special to me. And um, yeah, I guess, I guess what makes that series unique is that it's not just hunting and it's not just shooting. It's not your, not your generic kind of, North American hunting show where where someone is wearing is fully kitted out in like super expensive sponsored hunting gear and and it's like you know your typical North American hunt and someone's going off to a big trophy it's it's a little bit more realistic to most people in that most people don't have those big trophy hunting opportunities most people just want to go out and and enjoy nature and uh, and take a few shots and and possibly get an opportunity to to shoot a few animals or do some vomiting or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very realistic series um, in the sense that it, it appeals to a lot of people. I think the balance of, of lifestyle stuff where I show the sitting on the fire, the cooking breakfast, um, it, it's a, it, the way the day flows is how it actually happens. Is I think choreographed about it. it you know, if something happens unexpectedly, I'll, I'll put it in there. It's almost like reality TV, but it's it's like actually real. <laughs> and, and and obviously, we get opportunities to shoot some really cool stuff. Like 
especially the monkeys. Oh, that's oh, that's the, the most best. fun hunting. That's the best you could possibly do. <laughs> that's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say uh, as well. Like, have you have you got any plans doing any more with uh, the Oxwagon Diaries or the Vitmos Cliff? Or I noticed when I went down on a hunt uh, to a property, which is probably about eight or nine hours from uh, my house, uh, I noticed when the droughts really affected though the areas where I hunt, and uh, literally it's like scorched earth. It's just dry. It's hot. It's dusty. Um, there's not much game around. Have you had a similar uh, discussions with farmers about uh, the game? Is there still game up there? Is the is the species up there copying a hit from the the drought and the conditions? What's happening up that way? Yeah, the, the animals are taking a big hit. The, the numbers need to be managed. If there's too many animals and too little vegetation, then the animals will eat all the vegetation, and the, the topsoil will get blown away because there's there's no vegetation to keep it there. And then the farm is it's stuffed. Then there's no there's no going back. They're going to struggle for for many years after that. If the, all the nutrients in the topsoil is gone, they can't do anything about it. So they've got to do everything in their power to prevent overgrazing. Whether it's whether it's culling the animals that they already have, or whether it's doing uh, you know just continuous predator control to make sure the livestock don't keep getting wiped out. Or in the case of Vitmoskloof, the the ground squirrels, they eat a lot of vegetation where the sheep feed. They eat a lot of the grass there. Um, and the, the monkeys, they just enhanced nuisance when, when the drought's here because they've got nowhere else to feed on, on natural food. So they come down to where the people live and where the livestock are, and they start eating all the livestock feed. They start breaking windows, uh, stealing fruit from the farmer's house, stuff like that so the, the monkeys are actually much easier to shoot in in the drought times because they 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 don't do such a good job of hiding there's nothing to hide behind and they they come down to close to where the people are they're not afraid to get close and that makes it much easier but for some stupid reason i always end up going to Vitmuskloof either in the middle of winter or the middle of summer i guess it's the only gaps i have and that's the worst time to go because it's either scorching hot you would know in australia in the mid-summer it must get horrendously hot and then you don't want to be outside at midday <laughs> or in the winter it gets it gets very cold and it can go down to like negative five celsius and you don't really want to be sleeping outdoors in a in a canvas ox wagon if it's that cold so i should probably plan to go next year march or april but i know it's a busy time for me that time of the year so i might actually go out this december or january just to try to make the most of this holiday season and make the most of the dry conditions because the monkeys will be out. So maybe December, who knows? Are you looking to buy a new or used firearm? Do you want to sell that safe queen to fund your next purchase? Then go to OzGunSales.com. We have over 200 registered firearms dealers Australia-wide and thousands of shooters using the site daily. There are over 2,500 firearms listed, so you're certain to find exactly what you're looking for. We have over 50 years of firearms industry experience, including eight years online. So why wouldn't you advertise with us? The one and only genuine original Ozguns. When I start trying to say the, the name Vitmos Cliff, I guess it's not too hard, but I, me- I remember when I was living with the, the South Africans in America, they were very fluent. I'd get up in the morning, they were very fluent on Afrikaans. So uh, they were trying to yeah. teach me how to talk, you know, teach me some words, try and get me up to speed. But honestly, Matt, I was just as bad at the start as, as I was at the end. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's not an easy language to, to pronounce. Um, you have to get your and your and all of that right. Um, I had an Australian friend actually living. Um, I'm, I'm basically just an hour's drive from a place called Jeffreys Bay, which is like one of the top surfing spots in the world. So I had an Australian friend who, who came to live uh, in Jeffreys Bay with me for like, I think six months to a year, somewhere around there. And it was quite funny, just, you know, you you expect all the Commonwealth countries to be culturally quite similar, similar, but it's just not the case. Like, there's so many things that you, so many cultural differences you realize and language differences you realize when you actually, uh, like, living close to somebody or spending a lot of time with somebody. Um, and it's quite funny, just even some of the, the ways that we, we talk, even South African English versus Australian English is, is quite different. I love the way that you guys like to shorten everything and your Australian <laughs> slang is, is classic. It's I think it's one of the coolest things ever. It sure but is. Yeah, Afrikaans is. Afrikaans is completely different. It's basically Dutch. If I go to the Netherlands, I can understand um, Dutch pretty easily. It's basically, Dutch is basically Afrikaans spoken much faster and with a different accent. So, yeah, it's an interesting language. It's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting when I was living with that. One thing I probably did notice too, especially, and, you know, probably upbringing. I'm from Western Sydney. So, you know, we like to, and South Africans love to have a laugh too, but I, I found them sort of very conservative, very different probably in that respect. Like by the end of it, we were like laughing and making jokes and, and you know, they, everyone just had to get used to each other and find out... Uh, yeah, the differences in, in in culture and stuff like that. But uh, once we you know got got to know each other and the the walls came down, so to speak, we we got on really well and it was a, re- a really really good time and definitely enjoyable hanging out with uh, South Africans for four and a half months. That's for sure. But the main reason we're here on the show is to talk about obviously the YouTube channel. Now I think I just checked yeah a couple of hours ago and you're up to about three hundred and fifteen three hundred and thirteen thousand subscribers. Amazing. Tell us about the YouTube channel. Yeah, that's actually incredible. I mean, I started, I don't know if you know a channel called Ted's Holdover, but it's yep. another air gun channel. And basically, I started, I think it was one day in, in 2011. I turned on my computer and I just randomly decided I'm going to search for air gun hunting. And at this point, I had no idea that it was possible to hunt anything bigger than a pigeon with an air gun because the only air guns I was exposed to were very low power springers. And I searched egg and hunting. One of Ted's videos came up. Um, I saw him shooting, I think it was a rabbit. And I was blown away that someone could shoot a rabbit with an air gun, humanely. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and it was so weird. That, that day, the first time I ever saw an egg and hunting video, I decided I'm going to start my own channel. And I, the, the thought that went to my head was, hey, that's not too hard. I can do that. Because at that point, I'd had a little bit of experience uh, filming and editing videos, just very basic stuff, kind of home video style. And I decided I'm going to start my own channel, and I did. And I got almost no views for the first two or three years, very little, didn't put that much effort into it. And I actually got a job working, uh, well, an internship with a, a company that filmed spearfishing DVDs. And I had I, was, I got the job of editing and filming certain sections for this DVD and also running their YouTube channel, which at the time was the biggest spearfishing channel in the world. And through that, I, I, got a, I learned a lot about how to successfully run a YouTube channel, how you should be editing, 
um, the way that your audience would think, the way to analyze uh, certain information or feedback from your uh, creator studio and, and how to take it into account and in, in what you need to change in your next video, stuff like that. And from there, I decided to actually go full-time into YouTube and managed to bring some sponsors on board who have made this possible because, as you know, YouTube has been clamping down on, on gun-related content and it's very difficult to make money off of YouTube by itself anymore. In fact, if you're a gun channel, it's pretty much hopeless trying to make an income from from YouTube itself. So I've had to rely on numerous different sponsors um, and and doing odd jobs for, for uh, gun companies. So, for example, FX Air Guns has been very good in bringing me on board to as a consultant basically for barrels I've done a lot of work with, with their barrels and, and um, developing barrels to shoot slugs instead of pellets which has been a major step forward in the air gun industry and yeah just um, I've really enjoyed the journey and, and at this point YouTube is not so much an income maker for me YouTube is just it's almost gone back to a hobby because of this whole YouTube demonetization thing but I see YouTube as a as a door opener. YouTube introduces you to to companies within the gun industry that you can then work with afterwards, and um, and just introduces you to fantastic people all over the world, like yourself, and connects us all, which is fantastic. So I'd say YouTube at this point is is less of a job for me and more of a glue, like a glue holding various other jobs together. Um, but I'm enjoying every moment of it. I'm going to continue making videos. I'm kind of aiming for the, the half a million mark, but at the same time, I know that YouTube could decide to ban all gun-related stuff at any point, so I'm just enjoying the ride and, and taking it as it is. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories, and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au Quality gear at affordable prices. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one thing that's probably, you know, people expect on the, and I guess this goes for content creators like me, like you, obviously, as well, um, people in the YouTube or podcasting or whatever it may be. And, you know, like I always tell people, support you know, your content creators on the internet. As you just said, YouTube has been clamping down on gun channels. They've been clamping down on a lot of different things, which really disappoints me. And I always tell people, like, we, I guess we live in the age where everybody accepts um, or wants everything for free. And I'm like, well, I love your videos, hence why I'm a Patreon that supports you on Patreon because I think the content is absolutely fantastic and I'd like you and other YouTubers that I also sponsor on Patreon to continue to make videos well into the future. If people like me and other people that watch the videos don't support the content creators, then there'd be no reason for the content creators to create the awesome work that they do. Hence what I do, what you do, and what many other people do on the internet. And I guess I get really disappointed when I see, like as you were talking about sponsors, I have sponsors on the show. Um, I'd normally play them on the show while I'm talking to you, but I've had a bit of a problem with my computer and I'm just upgrading it at the moment, uh, waiting to build it this weekend. But, you know, we have sponsors and when you play or you recommend a product to someone... People just assume in the comments that, well, that's the product they got given. They're, you know, shilling this company and, you know, it's maybe not be a good product. Maybe it is, but people just get really upset in the comments. But I'm like, well, people need to be able to 
uh, support the companies. The companies need to be able to support us. And it's great when we actually see companies getting on board and, you know, throwing their weight behind YouTube channels or podcasts or whatever it may be. So uh, people need to realize that. It's very sad when I see people getting up the YouTubers, and I've seen them on your comments. I've seen them on my comments on the channel. Um, you know, when you have something or you recommend something to somebody and it's like, well, you know, it's free content, guys. Like, let's get serious. We, we want these content creators around for a long time to come. Yeah, people don't realize that if the viewer is not paying for the content, then someone else has to because we can't, as content creators, we can't do this for free. It's just not, it's not possible. So they've got to come to the, the realization that if they're not paying for content, in other words, you, you know, if they want to, they can by all means go ahead and and become a or like a YouTube Red uh, or YouTube Premium member and then not see those ads in front of the video or stuff like that. But at the end of the day, adverts are what keeps us going. And for me, yes, I'm sponsored by, um, you know, all kinds of uh, companies, whether it's the gun companies, scope rings, scopes, uh, bar pod silences, all kinds of little things that add up to keeping this, this channel going. But I'm in a privileged position where I'm able to sort of pick and choose which companies I want to be sponsored by, which is huge because I'm able to, to only use products that I love. And people must know that they can trust what I say about the products because I have chosen the products and not the other way around. Um, you know, I've, my channel is big enough where if someone approaches me from a company that I don't necessarily respect or they make products that I don't necessarily like, I'm in the position to say, sorry, I don't think I've got anything nice to say about that. Please don't send that to me. And and people don't realize that I've, had, I've turned down a lot of opportunities to make money for the sake of keeping my videos truthful. And um, yeah, so people, I guess many people are like that. There are obviously people, some people out there that, that don't care and they'll they'll do some of them they'll you can tell that they they're not being truthful in what they're saying they just want to make a quick buck but most of us out there are very genuine hunters and very genuine outdoorsmen i mean we the kind of people who who don't want to be stuck with a product that we absolutely hate we want to have fun out in the field we want to enjoy our filming we want to enjoy our shooting we want to be able to take those long shots and we're going to choose equipment that's going to be able to do that so, you know, trust what the equipment's able to do in the video. If you see me shooting a pigeon at 200 meters with an air gun, you can believe me that it, the gun's done that. I haven't tried to fool you into believing the gun's good. Um, but yeah, uh, sponsorships are an integral part of what we do nowadays. You can't just rely on, on uh, uh, even Patreon is fantastic, but it, there's got to be more than that. Patreon's kind of at this point for me trying to make up the difference of what um you know I used to earn from YouTube a few years ago versus now, um and thank you so much for supporting. By the way, I, I really really appreciate that. Even really small contributions make a big difference. So thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, no, it's not a lot, but like I tell guys, you know, if you pick someone, can get you know a hundred or two hundred or three hundred people. I mean, they can continue to make videos. Um, I mean, I know, as you know, you were doing spear fishing before. I did probably, at least in my former life, about 20 to 25 wedding videos. And I know exactly what goes into uh, making videos. I make a few on my YouTube channel myself, but that's just for, you know, my own joy of making my own videos, 
my own joy of looking back at hunts that I was on. Um, not really serious about that. Obviously, the podcast is my my main love and my main uh, interest as well. So. But I wanted to, when people, obviously, let's say they haven't checked out your channel, and that'd be crazy if they haven't, but what sort of content can uh, people expect when they jump on the YouTube channel? So my channel is a little bit of everything, but mostly air guns. I think because I've been so involved in the air gun industry, a lot of that filters down to my channel. So for example, if if I've been working on a new barrel, or I've been working um, with a projectile manufacturer, or or anything like that, you're going to see that technology filter down into my channel, and I, I, that's going to naturally be an interest that my videos revolve around. So, yeah, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of air gun stuff, um, specifically uh, often quite technical stuff. I enjoy my long-range shooting. I enjoy tutorials. I enjoy speaking about how a particular shot was taken or what I take into account when hunting a particular animal. I, I enjoy being outdoors. Um, but I've also introduced uh, not a lot, but but a fair amount of centerfire rifle hunting. I enjoy my long range shooting, and most of those videos come in the form of Oxwagon diaries. Uh, a lot of like monkey vomiting with a twenty two to fifty, some goose shooting, um, the occasional antelope. Uh, I've shot a baboon once with a crossbow, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess a little bit of everything. And uh, I pride myself on on trying to provide variety of content. But at the end of the day, I don't have any sponsors on the centerfire rifle side or on the bow hunting side. So if I had to just produce rifle and bow hunting videos, my channel wouldn't survive. And funnily enough, people don't seem to want to see that as much as they want to see the air gun stuff. I guess air gunning is just a, a more universally available sport. I know, for example, in Japan, you have to have an air gun for at least 10 years before you're allowed to even apply for a license for a firearm. Um, Indonesia as well, Indonesia, Thailand, they're huge into their air gun hunting. In fact, the majority of my views nowadays comes from Southeast Asia, believe it or not. Um, so that's, that's my, my biggest audience. So my focus has very much been on the air gun stuff, but I do enjoy pretty much anything that goes bang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i mean i obviously found you i'm not i can't remember where i found you i think it was a very not early on but uh i think you were on a couple of the dams on one of the farms and when you were shooting some of the ducks i think with the air rifles i think that's when i originally found you probably maybe about two years ago two and a half years ago something like yeah. that um but yeah i love the long range stuff i never honestly thought matt that i would um, and we'll talk about gear a little bit later because I wanted to mention one other thing as well. But I never thought I would get into you know, long-range shooting or long-range hunting. I never thought that would something that would interest me. But the more I learn about it and the more I do it myself, um, I think I'd love the long-range hunting definitely a lot more. But I'm really learning a lot about you know, my rifle, um, I was just away a couple of weeks ago shooting a, you know, a 11-inch or 10-inch or 11-inch gong at like 630 metres with my rifle and I was just blown away, like ding, with my Kestrel uh, 5700, it was just, I was like so stoked and uh, the only disappointment was, was pretty much for the whole week that I was away, uh, it was like 35, 25 kilometer an hour winds, 35 kilometers an hour. Even one day was up to about 44, 45 kilometers an hour. And you, <laughs> you just can't shoot in those types of conditions, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's amazing what a rifle can do when there's no wind. I mean, even in, in normal 
stock standard hunting rifle can perform incredibly well with the right ammunition at long range. But the wind, as you say, oh, the wind is a nightmare. It's, it's impossible to accurately predict what it's doing at every point between you and your target at long range. You just don't know. And that's something that you can't, that's something that only experience can teach you. Uh, you know, some of my friends who hunt a lot, I've realized I can have the best kestrel, I can have the best equipment, but those guys, it's another level. They, you know, they'll see an animal 800 meters across the valley, and they'll be able to tell you exactly what the wind's doing in the valley. And they'll take whatever the kestrel's, the kestrel reading is at their point, and they'll do some maths, and they'll get a completely different wind call to what I would get, just because of that extra experience. So, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I don't get to do as much long-range hunting and shooting as I'd like to. I just, I don't, it's easy for me to go out and shoot with air guns, but firearms to find enough space to go shoot regularly, um, I don't often get that. So, yeah, I guess it comes down to experience and having opportunities. Now that you've sort of had, you know, you've obviously done a lot of air rifle content and now the long-range centerfire, I mean, if you did have to to pick one, what would your favourite be and what why would it be your favourite? Ooh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've stumped him, so folks. I'll I've stumped like. him. <laughs> I'll tell you what I like about each. Um, what I like about centerfire rifle hunting or shooting in general is just the ability to reach out further and you know to be able to hunt whatever animals you want. Um, the 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 variety in in uh, in bullets, different kinds of bullets, and the way they expand and um, just, I guess, I find reloading very interesting. There's a whole lot of new factors there that, that aren't at play with air guns. So I enjoy that. But I, I think if I had to choose just one, it would have to be the air guns, just because if you're shooting with a centfire rifle, it's just too expensive to go out and shoot all day. This is not America where you can buy a huge crate of military surplus ammo for dirt cheap and just shoot it out of your AK. It's just, I can't do that here and probably not in Australia either. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have to yeah. you have to be a little bit more conservative in the way that you shoot. And air guns provide a lot of trigger time. You can go, you don't have to go too far out the city to find a place where you can just go crazy with your air gun. You can shoot and have fun and not worry about where that bullet's going to end up. Um, you can hunt small game. So if I go out and shoot pigeons, I can shoot all day. I, I don't have to worry about the cost. I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, burning up my barrel. That's another thing because of the licensing process with firearms in South Africa. Once a barrel has been shot out, you basically have to apply for a new license and that can take like six to nine months, which is just a horrible process. And then if you get a barrel that, that's a dud that doesn't work for whatever reason, then you've got to take another six or nine months to get a new one. Wow. So, I hate the fact that every time I take a shot with my rifle, I know that I'm one shot close to burning out my barrel. Whereas with an air gun, that thing just keeps going. You can shoot, the the more you shoot, the better it gets. You never have to clean the barrel. Um, so I guess if I had to choose, it would be air guns. The air gun, um, the technology in air guns is, is advancing a lot quicker than the technology in firearms is. Firearms have were mostly 95% developed a long time ago, and there have been very minor improvements, but nowhere near the leaps that we're seeing in the air gun community. And I guess as a technical thinking person, I, I want to be involved in, in the way that air guns are moving forward. 
So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think the best thing about making videos? I guess not. I guess we'll say social media as a whole. What do you think the the best and and most enjoyable thing about it is? So I enjoy. I'm actually a very introverted person, so I don't like being around a lot of people, which is weird for a YouTuber who has millions of people watching me. Like, for example, I hate trade shows. If I go to trade shows, I just I feel like I'm burning out and they go sit in a corner where there's no one around. I hate <laughs> being around big big crowds at shooting competitions. I just hate that. But when it comes to YouTube, I, I enjoy the creative process of filming and editing. Uh, it's, it's like a form of art to me. It's, it's an outlet. It's a way for me to express myself. Um, I enjoy the creative side of, of putting together a video, you know, choosing the music, choosing, uh, you know, doing the color grading, all of that stuff. I, I really enjoy that. So for me, even if I had no audience, I would probably still be making videos. Um, not probably nowhere near as good as the videos I make now, but I'd still be putting some effort into doing something because I really enjoy it. So, you know, even if, even if I can't make income from YouTube, I'll probably still, I would probably still do the odd video just because I enjoy it and because I enjoy sharing information with people. I am quite introverted, but I, I enjoy teaching. So stuff like uh, tutorial videos on ballistics, that's something that I I thoroughly enjoy making. I enjoy uh, people telling me that, that they've learned something in some way. So, yeah, I guess it's the creative side of it that I enjoy. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, when we, we're filming and you get all this footage and it's just like, well, how do I get this? into this over here and have that uh, vision of what I want it to be. I mean, I remember when I was doing weddings, it was just that whole process of like filming and then watching that process come together. And when you finish that video, it's like, wow, you know, like all that footage and the editing is, is the power. The editing is the power. But I wanted to go on to the flip side. What's the, what do you think the most negative thing about making videos for social media and or YouTube is? I guess the biggest negative is just that it's so time-consuming. Um, you know, if I'm busy filming something, and uh, if I'm busy filming something, and and I actually want to be just enjoying myself out, let's say at the Oxwagon camp, and I want to be just spending time with friends, and if I want to sleep in late, or if I want to just go for a casual drive. I have to constantly be aware of the fact that I need to get footage and that can kind of, that can suck, especially if you, if you, you're going along with a friend that you haven't seen for a long time and you actually want to spend quality time with a friend. And you, instead of spending time with a friend, you're spending time with your camera. That's a big negative. And I guess just from the YouTube side, from actually editing the editing, oh man, you, you, I guess you would know, but <laughs> yeah. there's a, there's a really, there's a sucky part of editing where, where you, when you just get the footage of the timeline and you realize how much footage you have to get through. And, and there's this long process of shortening everything down and, and just to organize everything in order and add the music. It only becomes enjoyable towards the end when, when everything starts to take shape. Exactly. Um, I'm sure you know what I mean. It gets fun towards the end because you can see the final product in sight. But when you just start editing, it sucks because it just takes so much time to get through everything. And that's for me, is the worst part. It's interesting when people are watching it and let's say a video is 15 minutes, all they get to see, the enjoyment is the 15-minute the video, whereas we 
yeah, you know, even podcasting, it's like I do the interviews for an hour. Me, me and you have corresponded on Instagram and on email. Uh, we've drafted up some questions. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of time before we even do the show. And then it's a, an hour or two hours to record the show or whatever you're doing out doing videos as well. You need to get all that footage, come back, do the importing process. I mean, they just see the final 15 minutes, but we've spent especially in regards to videos and to going out hunting, you could have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on videos. And, and it's just crazy that people just see that 15 minutes and go, that was great. But the countless hours and time gone into it is just, that's one thing people don't get to see as part of the process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm busy editing a video now and it will probably end up being maybe a 10 minute video. And I'm looking at, at the timeline and it says, you know, one hour and 12 minutes. And that's, you know, I've got, to, I've got to get that one hour and 12 minutes down to 10 minutes somehow, you know, and even just organizing my raw footage the other day and realizing that I've probably got about 50 or 60 terabytes of external hard drives. <laughs> and people don't realize that my YouTube channel, and I get people complaining, ah, oh, when are you going to put up a new video? The last one you put up was only last week. I'm like, dude, I can't, do more than one video a week it's just not possible <laughs> yeah it's... and i think people people appreciate your videos more when uh when they know what's got into them and i'm not the kind of person to to boast about how much effort has gone into something but i, I guess the frustrating thing is when you when you put a lot of effort into something and then and then the youtube algorithm just decides okay well it's a it's a hunting video uh, we're not going to notify all your subscribers. Only a small percentage of your, sub- of your subscribers will see this in your newsfeed. And m- a lot of my subscribers don't even get, don't even know that I put up a new video um, just because of the way you, you publish this stuff now to, to my subscribers. And so I'm trying to encourage people, you know, if I tell them if, if they like the video, they must show that they like it. They must hit the like button. If they want to see videos, they must, they must click that notification bell because that's the only way that you can over, overcome um, something like YouTube deciding for you what people want to see and what they don't. You know, YouTube sees generated content as something that overall is not that interesting just based on the fact that it's a smaller demographic of people who want to see it. You know, there's probably a lot more people out there who want to see cat videos, but it doesn't mean that cat videos are better. It just means that there are more people who want to see it. So they need to, YouTube needs to respect the fact that we even though our, our community is small, it's still a very strong community of people who want to see content. And YouTube needs to make sure that people who are subscribed, they subscribe for a reason. They want to see the content. So it just for me, it's frustrating that they're holding that back because if I do hours and hours of work, days of work on one video, and then it, it gets a tiny fraction of the views that I think it should get, then it's super frustrating. It, uh, it it does blow my mind when I look at like your videos, and there's a lot of other YouTubers out there as well. And I watch the content, and I think, you know, obviously there's some uh, YouTube creators that have a lot less, say, subscribers than you. And I look at this content, and I thought, wow, the effort that's gone into that. And then I see some uh, <laughs> video about a stupid cat just doing something stupid for 20 seconds, and it's got like six and a half million views. And I'm like, where is the world going, Matt? 
mean, where is the world going? Yeah. Because, you know, like this guy's putting so much effort in. And even if it's not hunting related, I've seen other good channels in other, you know, hobbies that I'm interested in. I thought, wow, man, that is great content. And then some cat video gets 15 million views. It's just like, what are we doing as a society? But uh, you were talking about the icon bell as well. And I noticed there's a few, including yours, but there's a few, many others too that I have uh, set up the icon bell. And I noticed a lot of them, uh, some, yeah. in the, some in the gun community and some in um, a, a more of a politics style community. I'm not getting the, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm getting the notifications and then other times I'm like, what's happening with that notification? Either they've, or, I reckon it's YouTube, but I could be wrong. Uh, they've either turned off my icon bell uh, or I go on the person's channel and I say, no, I've got the icon bell ticked and I'm still not getting videos because maybe that YouTuber popped into my mind and I've checked and I'm like, well, no, they've been making videos regularly, yet I've seen nothing for the last two months from them. So YouTube needs to sort their frigging shit out, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, I kind of understand, I'm, I'm at peace with the fact things have changed from the way that they were 10 years ago because um, back then, there were the, the ratio of content creators to to videos and viewers was was very different, but now it's you, there's so much content that YouTube has to find a way of sifting through it. Otherwise, the only thing you'd see is the latest from some random guy who shouldn't actually be seen by people. So I, I understand the need for algorithms, and I understand from a programming point of view that because the gun community, or at least the hunting community, is is so much smaller than many other communities that it would be content that kind of gets pushed to the bottom of the priority list. But the thing that does frustrate me is not having a voice and the fact that nobody in, in the gun community seems to be able to have open communication with YouTube about letting them know how we feel. That for me is wrong. It's almost like having an employer that you can't talk to because YouTube is sort of an employer. It's like this is a company that many people are, are relying on for their income and for their marketing. And it's like the fact that we can't talk to a human being on the other end you know, if, if I try and message, I, I've got a hundred because I've got a hundred thousand subscribers. I can send a message to somebody on YouTube, help, and they'll get back to me. But ninety-five percent of the time, it's a random Indian guy who's been employed by YouTube somewhere <laughs> in India and has no idea, has absolutely no clue what he's doing. And I feel like I'm, I'm just talking to a brick wall, and they give you generic answers that they. They've probably got a list of answers that they're allowed to give, and they click on it, and it, it comes back to you. Okay. So it's like it doesn't really help. And and you know, if we need to talk to somebody about it, we should be able to do that. You know, it's that's frustrating. Absolutely, yeah. I totally agree with you, man. I want to get on to a very, very important part of the show, which is let's talk about some gear. So I want to talk about uh, FX air guns. We can obviously get them over here as well. We have some interesting uh, gun laws in Australia, uh, obviously a lot different than what you guys can do. Um, there's some okay stuff here, but there's a lot of bad stuff. But talk about us about FX air guns. I know you've been um, very much into FX air guns. And uh, something that's interesting, I guess, uh, from the old springers is getting into the PCPs, but air rifle, uh, the slug barrels, which is interesting, which sort of blows my mind in regards to different opportunities with uh, air guns. So tell us about FX air guns and tell people a bit about 
um, slug barrels and what they can, uh, or slug liners, I should say, whatever they're called these days. I'm not huge, I'm not big on the air guns because I don't know what I'm talking about. So that's why you're here. <laughs> but tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So the reason that I've really, really enjoyed FX is just because they're such a forward-thinking company and they listen to people. So as an example, I only really started. I only the first time I ever shot an FX air rifle was in twenty. 14, I believe, or no, 2015, actually. So quite pretty recently, actually. Um, it was about five years after I started my channel, four years after I started my channel. And before that, I was shooting air arms. I was shooting caliber gun. I was shooting many different brands. But And I had opportunities to go to some of the factories that make those guns and give my thoughts on what needs to be improved. And, and as someone who shot every single day for many, many years, I should be someone that people at least listen to, but the, a lot of those, those factories, they they even if, even though they never shoot air guns, they the only air guns they ever get to shoot are with at an indoor twenty meter test range to make sure the barrel's shooting okay. But they don't have any real world experience. But none of those none of those companies had any interest in listening to the, the end user and listening to people who who they should actually listen to. So I. I contributed some ideas to those companies and they just laughed at me like like my advice was pretty much useless to them. And that's okay. I understand if that's what they choose to do and maybe my advice sucked. But when the first time I met Frederick, who's the owner of FX, the first thing he did, even hardly knowing who I was, is, is listen. And, and then he'd process what I had to say and he'd say, okay, this is a good idea because and this is not a good idea because. And the classic example is I was at the FX factory and because of my experience with long range shooting with center fires, I know that the ballistic coefficient in a bullet is incredibly important. I know that the, I know what makes a barrel shoot well. And I know, I know that a bullet weight and a bullet ballistic coefficient is one of the first things you look at when you want to do long range shooting. So for me, I started questioning why the heck is the air gun world stuck with pellets? Why? Why has the projectile not? Um, why has there been no improvement in so many years? And, and back in in 2016, I actually made a prediction, and I said on YouTube, I said the next big advancement in air technology is going to be the projectile because we've got the, the, there's a limit to the working pressure in a PCP. Um, generally, you're limited to whatever you're able to fill the gun to, and most scuba tanks can only go to maximum 300 bar. So there's a limit there. You know, you look at a firearm, that the firearm's 60,000 PSI in a chamber. An air gun is maybe 2,000 PSI. So you're never going to get firearm performance in terms of pressures. But you can, the, the projectile technology can advance forward. And I project, I, I've actually presented these ideas to FX. And at that time, in the in the world of air guns, no one had had, had any success in making an air gun shoot slugs well. But... I saw that the, uh, uh, the way I saw it was if a rimfire can shoot a bullet, then why can't an air gun shoot a bullet? It'll be a little bit slower. The bullets will be a little bit lighter, but why can't it? So I presented this idea to Frederick at FX. And at first, Frederick said, well, we've tried this many times. Many other companies have tried it. We can't get it working. So we don't see a point. And they didn't see the industry going this way. But this is, this is the difference between FX and many other companies. Frederick said to me, he said, Matt, if you believe that this is a, a big step towards the future, then I'll give you free reign with the barrel machine, make whatever barrel you want, test it. 
I will pay for you to come over to Sweden whenever you want. And I believe that if anyone can can make this work, that you can do it. Even if I, even if you know, even if though, even though he believed that it probably wasn't the way forward. And to his credit, he he gave me free reign and he allowed me to move forward with an idea that I was pretty set could work. And after basically two or three years of of solid testing, we finally got it working. And now look at the result, you know. Um, Frederick is, the FX is now building guns around the slugs. I mean, the slugs are the new big thing in the air gun world and and FX is building guns around slugs. they're getting tons of orders for slug barrels. Every other manufacturer is getting re- requests to build guns that can shoot slugs. Um, it's just taking over. And we're taking shots now out to 300 meters with an air gun, which is impossible a few years ago. So the, the big thing for me with FX is, yes, they make awesome products. I love their guns. But for me, it's the fact that I know that in one, year, in one year's time, the gun will be better. And they will not stagnate and they'll, they'll not get boring. They, they're going to get better. Whereas other companies, some other companies have been making the same guns for 10 years and, and changing very little on them. And they, those companies, I'm telling you now, they're going to die out very quickly. And <laughs> Frederick and FX are just, they're the only company I, I know that is moving quick, moving faster than, than, than the rest of the industry. And, and they're going to be on top in a few years. And I want, I want to be part of that, that movement. Very exciting to me. Absolutely. Tell us about, just for the people that uh, are not sure, what is the difference between your standard um, uh, air rifle uh, pellet compared to slugs? What is the difference? What is a slug liner? And what is the difference compared to your standard versus your slugs? And, and how does it work? Okay, well, a, a pellet is traditionally, they call it a, a diablo shape. So, you know, a traditional pellet's got a head, it's got a waist, and it's got a skirt, almost like a, like a shuttlecock um, in badminton. Yep. Um, similar to that, it's it's a very stable design in that it was it was built it was designed hundreds of about a hundred years ago more than a hundred years ago to be stable out of a smooth bore barrel. Obviously, a long time ago, no one was putting tons of money into producing expensive air guns, and the whole idea with air guns is that you should be able to shoot them indoors, you should be able to shoot them easily, and they should be fairly accurate, regardless of. Um, regardless of what barrel you shoot out of and and an air gun pellet because it's got that thin skirt an air gun pellet can adapt to the barrel and also because the center of of mass is in front of the center of pressure it's a self-stabilizing projectile it doesn't need to be spun that much to fly straight Um, but a a slug is basically more like a bullet in that it's, it's got a sharp nose and a flat base and a slug because it's a solid projectile, it doesn't adapt to the barrel, so the barrel has to be of a very, very specific size, and the the um, the center of mass is behind the center of pressure, which means there has to be a very specific twist rate to get that, that slug to fly straight. If you try and shoot a slug out of any old barrel, chances are it's not going to shoot well. The pellet's going to shoot more accurately. But the slug, because of its shape and because of its extra weight, has a much higher ballistic coefficient, which makes it more aerodynamic, which means that it doesn't lose velocity that easily. It, it, it maintains its momentum much better. It shoots much flatter. Um, and that means you can take much longer shots with a lot less wind drift. So typically, uh, let's say, for example, a 23-grain slug compared to a 21-grain pellet, it's very similar weight. But a 23-grain slug will literally have half the maybe maybe a third of, of the wind drift 
and probably half the drop at 100, 100 meters. So it makes a huge difference, and, and I'm really glad the industry is moving in that direction. And a slug liner, basically, a slug liner is a, is a barrel that we've developed. A liner basically is a, is a barrel sleeve that goes inside a barrel housing. It's very specific to FX air guns design. But the whole concept of the barrel housing and liner in, in the FX guns is that you can take out your pellet liner, which is has a specific twist rate and choke and and everything for pellets, and take that out, and you can put in a slug liner, which is is built around a slug and to to shoot that slug with the optimum twist rate and all of that. So, yeah, basically, a slug liner is a, is a barrel that's designed around the slugs. Do you think uh, you know pellets or air gun pellets will be a thing of the past, say in the next ten years, and it'll be all be slugs? Is that what you'd like to see, or do you think there's a still a market for just your standard pellets, or do you think the slugs will be a way of the future, and, and that's the way the industry will go? Um, I think we're going to see a lot more slugs in the future, and I think we're going to see a lot more serious marksmen, long range shooters, uh, guys who do pest control. Uh, as a job, um, we're going to see slugs being used by those guys a lot more. And especially with the prices coming down with slugs, you know, all the major manufacturers are making them now. Um, that's going to have a huge effect. But I think pellets are here to stay, uh, partly because a lot of the cheaper guns, let's say Gamo Springers, for example, they're so popular around the world. by far the best selling guns. But they don't have the, the technology to manufacture barrels that are consistent enough to shoot slugs accurately and those guns are not powerful enough as well so you're going to find that pellets are are going to still be used especially in sensitive situations like shooting at uh, starlings in your roof if there's a a backstop that can get pierced by slug you're going to have found people shooting pellets still so pellets are here to stay but the ratio of pellets to slugs is going to change dramatically i think it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see that change. And plus, slugs are actually easier to manufacture than pellets. So you're going to find a lot of pellet manufacturers struggling because slug manufacturers are going to be able to make the slugs much cheaper. Um, it's going to be very interesting. I want to talk about calibers as well, something interesting. And now that you've been talking, something's actually come back. Uh, I've reminded myself. Uh, I was looking for a 6.5 centerfire cartridge. Now, (laughs) I'm not sure if this is happening in South Africa, but maybe it's a worldwide trend. I was looking at the 6.5 Creedmoor, and um, in Australia, that seems to have gotten... I'm not saying it's got a bad name, but if you own a 6.5 Creedmoor, it's just... It seems that people on social media were more inclined to to give people a bit of shit about owning a 6.5 Creedmoor. You know, it's a new kid on the block, it's a girl's gun, it's this, it's etc. Anyway, so I looked at different calibers, 6.5 Creedmoor, looked at the 6.5 by 55, you know, Swedish Mauser, um, different calibers then i saw the 260 and that's when i first saw your videos and i thought to myself okay as you do if you check out uh, something that you might like well let's see what the 260 is doing on the internet well you know punch it into youtube and uh several channels came up one was yours 
Uh, one was an interview I did with um, 260 Rips from England. He shoots long-range oh, yeah. shooting as well. So I've got a, I did an interview with him about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's coming out on the 18th of December. But uh, I did an interview with him, and then I saw your videos, and I thought, shit, man, you've got some great content. You know, you're really good on the you know, production process. And I thought, well, man, if it's good enough for these guys to shoot up to, you know, up to a thousand meters with, well, you know, it's good enough for this idiot in Australia to do as well. So you guys were the ones that sort of, you know, put me, you know, like put my mind at rest that, yeah, the 260 can take this type of game. And I saw you and 260 Rips were using the 143 grain ELDX from Hornady, which I use as well now. I think it's a fantastic bullet. Um, so tell us about the calibers that you own. And the, a big question, what's the favorite gun that you own at the moment? So before I get to my my own guns, let me just chip in here. I know this uh, this might be a controversial answer, but I actually think the 6.5 Creedmoor is really good. And I think that people who are hating on it are... I think probably being a little bit stupid because the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is a 6.5 Creedmoor is a very modern cartridge that's got much better characteristics and is more readily available now in terms of ammo and rifles than a 260 or a 6.5 or 55. 6.5 or 55 is an awesome caliber, but it's a very, very old caliber. You have to shoot out of a long action and and the problem is if you buy factory ammo with a 6.5 or 55, the factory ammo is often like really tuned down because a lot of 6.5 or 55s are so old. The rifles are so old that they can't handle the pressures of, of um, you know, most hand-loaded or factory-loaded ammo that's loaded high. So the factory ammo on a 6.5 or 55 is actually slower than the factory ammo on like a 260, for example, which is like there's no point in buying a 6.5 or 55 then. Um, 260 is awesome, and the reason I got a 260 is basically because I, I realized that if there's a if there's a if I can't find good brass, I can at least neck up 243 brass or neck down 308 308 brass. 260 is an awesome caliber, but I have to say the the 6.5 Creedmoor is basically on par with the 260. There's very little between them. Um, 6.5 Creedmoor is actually made a little bit shorter, the cartridge is a bit shorter, which means, and the throat's a bit longer. So generally speaking, you can load, seat that bullet a bit longer um, for your magazine length, and and that gives you a bit more freedom, whereas with most 260s, you don't have, the, the bullet ends up sitting really deep in the cartridge, which is, which is not ideal. So even though the, the case capacity on the 6.5 Creedmoor is a bit smaller, you can still get the same velocities. And So I think 6.5 Creedmoor is really good, and I think that people who think that it's a, girls cartridge they're probably just a bit jealous probably just a bit jealous because it's the last thing <laughs> but yeah 260 the 260 is awesome the only reason why i went with the 260 over the 6.5 creedmoor is that at the time the 260 was the more available cartridge in south africa a few years ago but now it's completely the other way around factory ammo for 6.5 creedmoor is much cheaper you can find everywhere way more availability of guns the guns are cheaper everything so don't know what Australia's like, but in South Africa, the best choice now in the 6.5 range is probably the the Creedmoor. Um, in terms of what guns I have, um, I've got uh, my first rifle I got was the 260, and kind of bought that as a, a just a factory long range gun. It's a Savage Model 12, uh, varmintal low profile. Weirdly enough, South Africa is the only country in the world that can get the Savage 12 VLP in 260 because our, our importers requested it specifically. 
Um, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good gun. Uh, and, and I really, I've really enjoyed it. It's super, super accurate. It just, just seems to get more and more accurate the more I shoot. But then I decided, you know, I, I want some variety. So I bought a, a 22 to 50 ticker and I'm using the 22 to 50 shooting 50 grand VMAXs. And I use that for everything small. I use it for ground squirrels, monkeys, uh, uh, geese, all kinds of stuff. And it's just a really, really good vomiting rifle where I can shoot quickly. There's no recoil. I can film through the scope because because of that lack of recoil, which is awesome. And yeah, I'm really enjoying that. The only thing with the 20 to 50 is the barrel doesn't last very long, so that sucks. <laughs> yeah. But it is what it, it is what it is. And at least I've got three guns, so I don't have to use the same gun all the time. And then of course the third gun was very very recent acquisition. I bought a 300 WSM. Also, ticker action, but I put a Bartline barrel on it, a 26-inch barrel, big silencer with a muzzle brake, um, a nice GRS Warg chassis, uh, Timney trigger. Like That gun is properly kitted out, and I shot with it a few days ago. I did like 750 meters in like 20, that, yep. 20 to that. 30 miles per hour wind, and it was just, I can tell you now, I was shooting much better at long range than my 260 was which is saying something because 260 is an awesome long range caliber but that that 300 wsm is just for hunting for long range hunting it's going to pack a bigger punch on bigger animals which is actually what i need at the moment 260 does the job but the 300 just gives me more peace of mind that if i don't put in a perfect shot i'm still going to get the animal down so yeah those are my three rifles and and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, oh, no, I've made the wrong decision. I should have got the 6.5 Creedmoor. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're both awesome. You, you, won't, you won't go wrong with either. And I think, I think there's something pretty cool about getting a 260. It's something different. Um, yeah, it's, it's something unique. And you're not, you know that you're not going, going with the flow like, like a lot of the other shooters. And maybe that's the reason why yep. two, uh, the 6.5 Creedmoor has got a bad rap. I guess people feel that it's People are just buying it to go with the flow. But yeah, 260 is, is pretty much on par. I guess they're about the same. Yeah, it was interesting when you brought up then too about I love my, I got a couple of the GRS Berserk stocks, the just the standard black one. And I remember yeah. when, I think when I saw one of your pictures and I saw your video the other day too on um, Facebook, it might have been maybe uh, you were shooting that 720 meters. And when you had the initial photo of the GRS Warg stock, I was kind of mixed on it because I'm like, oh, it kind of looks good but it looks like it wants to be a chassis <laughs> but it doesn't want to be a chassis uh, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm still not sure about whether I like it but uh, I definitely love the GRS Berserk stock why did you settle on that Warg stock for the uh, 300? Well I think for me the big thing is because the 300 is a high recoiling rifle I wanted something where the bar pod could be mounted very close to the barrel um, and the chassis is a good way to go for that the, the recoil impulse um, a little bit more straight back, I guess. Aside from that, there's really no big difference. But I, I probably would have liked to go for an, just a normal chassis. But uh, the, the GRS, basically, when I spoke to them, they were saying that the chassis, the full chassis, are not really cost-effective for them. It, it, they don't really make much profit or any profit on those. So they didn't want to, they actually want to discontinue them. Um, whereas the the warg was a way for them to 
for guys who already own various stocks like I do to get the exact same feel from the stock, but have the basically the the feel of shooting with a chassis by having that that fore end where you could have the bipod mounted really close to the barrel. So yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it actually. It's surprisingly uh, surprisingly pleasant to shoot with. The bipod's mounted very far forward as well. Um, but I guess it depends on what kind of shooting you want to do. If you're just a casual hunter, I wouldn't go for one of them. They're a little bit heavier. Um, but if you're a if you enjoy your long range shooting, it's a really good option. Did you go just a couple more, a couple of questions before we finish off? Did you go with the uh, three, the WSM because it's um, short mag or, did you, or long action, short action? I should say, not uh, long action. What was the reason for going the short action? Well, I've got a lot of um, friends who shoot like F class Bisley and um, do a lot of long range shooting. I hunted with some guys who who shoot long range of the three hundred, and it's a very very it's a very, very tunable caliber. Um, it's inherently accurate. It's it's going to shoot well, even when it's not on its accuracy node. It's very forgiving in that sense. Um, um, whereas like a wind mag, for example, you've got a ton of recoil as well. So you've got to manage the recoils. You've positioned a little bit wrong. Your point of impact is going to be off. So the 300, it doesn't, the recoil is not too bad. Um, it's a very efficient cartridge in, in, in the sense that you don't have that much powder for the amount of muzzle energy you're getting. So, for example, I'm shooting a 208-grain Hornady ELDM at like 27.50 feet per second, and I'm getting better performance, significantly better performance at long range than my 260 um, with, with only a slight bit more recoil. Whereas if I was a wind mag, it would be a lot more recoil um, a lot of the older belted magnums like the 7mm Rem Mag, they're good guns, they're good calibers, but 300WSM is a very modern cartridge that was developed using a lot more scientific data. So in general, it's, it's, common, it's common knowledge that it's a better caliber. So for me, the, the WSM, I just wanted a modern cartridge that, that's super efficient, that doesn't recoil much. Um, that gives me a good punch down range and that's inherently accurate basically a lot of people are using the ELDM match bullets as well for hunting I know uh, a few guys here in yeah. Australia are getting really really good results with the, the, the match bullets but also getting good penetration and good expansion even though Hornady says you know, they're not for hunting a lot of people are using them and I think um, actually, if I'm correct in saying that I think it was your vapor trails uh, which I'd also recommend people go and watch guys when this actually goes live Live, check out Matt's channel. Uh, he's got a series called Vapor Trails, and uh, I think one of the guys—I can't remember what his name was—you, you guys shot from the big rock up the top, and you shot two uh, warthogs from about 350 or 400 meters, and uh, that was crazy. And I'm pretty sure he was using um, the match bullets out of the 300 WSM. If I'm correct, I'm not 100 sure. Exactly, exactly. That—that's the guy who who basically inspired me to get the 300. I just his results and the gong gong shooting competitions he's won and I mean he basically he basically hunts almost every single day. He must have shot thousands and thousands of animals. Um and I trust his, his information and just seeing in one of those videos he shot a a fellow deer from like seven hundred and fifty meters or something like that. And just two awesome actually shot two in a row. Two awesome shots with ELDMs. Um 
and those bullets expanded nicely. He found them on, on the opposite shoulder, um, in the skin, opened up nicely. And basically the reason I went for those is the, the LDXs, which I'm using out of my 6.5, they, uh, they're fantastic, but they, they don't. So basically they're, they're designed to work at all ranges where they open up a little bit and then they, you get an interlocked ring that stops it from expanding too much. And that they work great. But at, at really long ranges, the LDMs actually perform better because they, they, they mushroom, but they mushroom a bit bigger. So they, they, put, they put that animal down a bit better. And I was just finding the 260 with the, with the LDXs at long range, I'd get a, a complete pass through and the animal would go down 50 to 60 meters after running 50 to 60 meters. But it wasn't, it wasn't that animal dropping on the spot that you want to see in a hunting video. So... I'm giving the LDMs a try, and if they don't work, then I'll I can always switch back to the LDXs of a similar weight. But I'm going to see how the LDMs do. If if you go to the um, the match bullets for the 300, if they work in the 300, would you consider switching in the 260 to the match bullet as well? Um, probably not, but only for the reason that I've done so much load development on the 260, and I'm, I've got a very settled load now, so I don't want to touch it. It's it just it puts those bullets through the same hole at 100. Um, it's it seems to be getting better and better all the time and I just don't want to touch it. So for me, my two sixty is again I never want to do low development with ever again. If I pick up the two sixty, I want it to be for hunting or for like long range gong practice or something. But I'm done with low development now. I don't want to do it ever again. So I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> stick with the LDXs. <laughs> and I was gonna say you don't want to be if you got especially with the long t- uh, time it takes to get a new barrel. <laughs> you don't want to touch uh, low development yeah. again for the next twenty years unless you have to when you burn out a barrel. Exactly. <laughs> Mate, last question to finish off. I know you're probably busy and you've got to go. So uh, on the Oxwagon Diaries, you had Luke Kibble, one of your uh, good mates. He uh, was on the Oxwagon Diaries. Yeah. So when people check out that uh, that series, they will see Luke. I think on about the first uh, 10 or 12 videos uh, or, or thereabouts and uh, people have been asking you where is he you guys made a great team and um, he was really really good and you, know, you guys working together as a team and shooting the long range stuff I found was absolutely fantastic so I guess people are, are wanting to know where's Luke is he going to be coming back again soon is he still living in South Africa and is he is he still shooting we want to know where he is yeah Luke's still around I think he's just um, just hasn't had much time recently um, he he was studying uh, chartered accounting at the time, so in during his holiday breaks, he was so desperate to get out out of town that he would come out to me on these trips. And I guess it was his way of escaping. But now he's he's working now, and he's um, he's married, and he kind of just wants to settle down. And um, I think he just I don't know his life has just changed a little bit. His priorities might be a little bit different. We still see each other often. We're still good friends. He'll probably still come out with me on these trips and you'll still be in, in future videos at some point. I guess this year has just been a bit crazy for him in that uh, his life has changed quite a lot and he hasn't necessarily had uh, time to go out and do stuff with the boys. He, he's been um, kind of settling in with his wife and bought a house and, um, yeah, just been, been settling down, I guess. But hopefully... We can make some time soon to get him out of town for a few days and and get out and have a you know boys day out or a boys weekend out at, at the Oxwagon camp and make some more videos. I think that would be awesome. I can see Luke is itching to 
he's itching to get behind a rifle again. <laughs> every time I talk to him, he's every time I talk to him, he tells me he's been he's he's decided that he's going to get a new rifle, but he's been saying that now for so long. <laughs> so, I think that's what we. That's he's what been browsing. Saying. Yeah, he's been browsing online. Every free chance he gets, he browses online, decide he's looking for a new gun to buy. So he, it's only a matter of time until he he's uh, back out in the in the bush with me. Absolutely, mate. Uh, to finish off, uh, just tell us about, you know, got any plans for the future, future videos coming up, anything people can look forward to? And, of course, the biggest question is if people want to find you on social media, how do they do it? Yeah, so I've actually got some big projects on the way. People may have noticed I, I haven't been uploading quite as regularly recently because I'm working on some awesome projects in the background which are going to be launched at, uh, at the EWA trade show in Germany. So that's, that's something I've been putting a lot of my attention towards. It's going to be awesome. Um, can't wait to share that with everyone. Unfortunately, I can't share any, any details yet. But uh, in terms of YouTube, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got some awesome plans. I'm probably going to head out to film some more Oxwagon Diaries videos again. I've got some hunting uh, plans for next year, basically continuing the Vapor Trail series. Uh, probably go out with my 300 and, and shoot, go hunting for a week, probably shoot five to seven animals, which should be fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and yeah, I, if people want to watch some of my videos, uh, you can find me on YouTube, Air Arms Hunting South Africa, or just Air Arms Hunting SA, one word. Um, or just type in Matt Dabba on YouTube. I actually have a travel vlog as well if people want to see my, my trips and I actually almost forgot to tell you this, but at some point I'm planning to come to Australia. Um, my friend uh, in in New South Wales, the uh, Bo, um, he's been out to some of the air gun competitions I shoot in. He's a lot of um, pest control and vomiting there in Australia. He he actually got asked to shoot pigeons at the Sydney Opera House. So yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I doubt I, I doubt I'll, I'll be able to get involved with that because you probably need some very specific permits. But maybe, maybe there's a chance that I can come over and make a video of, of those shooting pigeons at the Sydney Opera House, which should be something very interesting. So I'm hoping to get out to Australia. That should be awesome. And uh, yeah, uh, that that's going to be something for the for the memory books for sure, because it'll be something different. A lot of fox shooting, a lot of, uh, yeah, shooting some feral animals, kangaroos, stuff like that. So be interesting. All right, Matt, thanks for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, people that are listening to this show, especially in Australia, guys, jump on. I mean, us Australians love the YouTube content. You know, when most of us can't get out and we can't go hunting and shooting, we uh, often get on the internet. We jump on the the YouTube and other social medias to find out about hunting, to like uh, Matt's friend Luke. We're always online looking for new firearms or things to buy. And, uh, you know, so check him out, Air Arms Hunting SA fantastic content fantastically made production value is level 5000 guys you won't be disappointed so matt dubber thanks for joining me here on ahp to represent air arms hunting south africa i appreciate your time and uh, we've had a great chat today so thanks very much and uh one thing we do have matt is universally we may be different we may be from a different country but what we do have in common is uh our love of hunting shooting and being in the outdoors so thanks for coming on the show i really appreciate it yeah, thanks so much, Jason. It's a it's an absolute uh, privilege, and I hope to hear from you soon, mate. Keep well. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.